Brock, it's such a pleasure to see you again after all this time that we've known each other, meeting probably over 10 years ago and having co-invested a million times. Uh, so thanks for having me. Um, my path into venture, you know, was um, I think you know there there isn't there isn't one singular path into venture capital. I think um, all people's paths are kind of like snowflakes; not one is the is the same. Um, you know, so for me, um, my path was having the fortune of growing up in Silicon Valley and really being in the eye of the storm uh, in a small town. You know, that I used to joke was full of dentists and Stanford professors. This small town called Palo Alto, California which you know became sort of the backbone of silicon valley and in many ways the epicenter of the rise you know of, of of the dot-com era and so you know really had the fortune of kind of growing up as that with my backyard and the experiences that that afforded me were to hear about companies like google and facebook and others you know quite early in in my journey so you know after graduating from stanford i was actually one of the weird black sheep who joined google so in the the time when i graduated most people were still computer science majors weren't popular yet. Most people were still studying economics and they were seeking jobs at firms like Goldman, Morgan Stanley, JP Morgan, McKinsey, and they were all moving to New York. And so I was one of the few people in my class who stayed back and actually got a job at this company that was relatively small at the time called, called Google. Um, so, you know, my, my work at Google really took me around the world, um, got to scale some teams and spend a year in India. Um, but really, I think that the through line of my career has always been trying to have um, impact at scale. And I think the, the core passion has always been international. And so really getting to see the world, um, believing that sort of economic development comes from, uh, you know, providing jobs and, and building platforms that are sustainable. So I think through the course of my career, it was this attempt to sort of find the right home base to do that. And so that meant, you know, going abroad with a company like Google that was a, a mega company, um, going to the White House where I thought I could have more impact more from the policy side, and then ultimately realizing that entrepreneurship is the real driver of how you drive change in, you know, in, in, in different markets around the world. And so that kind of led me to the path of, you know, joining startups, starting startups and investing in startups. In your book, Fuzzy and the Techie, you argue the importance of pairing the technical skills with liberal arts training. Why do you believe it's a type of well-rounded education is so vital, and especially today? Yeah, you know, what's, what's interesting about a book is, uh, you know, every startup has the benefit of Monday morning quarterbacking, as we might say in America, where you start doing one thing, but five years later, you say, oh, no, no, this is what we've always been doing. This was always our idea. You know, even though the company's actually pivoted seven times and they've kind of iterated their way toward this answer, which is the, the product market fit. What's difficult about a book is you write it and it truly becomes a time capsule. So what you said in 2016, what you said in 2017 becomes cast in stone and the book does not change. You know, it's printed on the, the physical page and it's in airport bookstores and it's out there on the on the Internet. And that's what you said. And so for me, I wrote the book in 2016. The book came out April of 2017 um, in English in, in the States, and then was subsequently translated into about 14 different versions around the world. So it's in Japanese and Chinese and Korean and a bunch of other languages. Um, but what's really interesting about the, the thesis of the book was that it I wanted to give people permission to be themselves. And so the, the narrative about Silicon Valley was solely that science, technology, engineering, and math were the backbone of every good entrepreneur, every good startup. And the truth was sitting on Sand Hill Road and investing in companies, you know, since 2011, 
um, a lot of the great founders, the people that I really respected were people that came out of history backgrounds, philosophy backgrounds, policy backgrounds. They were partnered with a technologist, but they were their core driver was solving a big problem that they saw in the world and having this well-rounded background that enabled them to uh, spot the opportunity to hire the team, the charisma to storytell around that idea. And so there were all these soft skills that were really important. And so to me, the, the book that I, I wrote was really about you know, with the move toward AI and the move toward technology, um, the irony was that technology was going to take away all the routine and rote tasks and all the things that were going to be left for humans require more critical thinking, more smarts, more education, broader education. And so the irony to me and the thing I wanted to point out, and again, I wrote this in 2017, was that as technology gets better and better and better, which it is, it's only driving the need for more human skills and the ability to ask questions, the ability to spot bias, the ability to kind of push back against technology. And so the way you do that is by not studying one thing as narrowly as possible. Um, certainly, you know, there will be experts in every category that will continue to have crazy depth of expertise. But I think for the, the general person to be sort of dangerous in the future, my premise was that they should have a broad-based education they should be studying things like philosophy and literature and history to be able to write, to be able to ask questions. Um, and then, you know, technology will always be there and it's only going to get better and better, but this only makes us more human. So that's kind of the thesis of the book, you know, the fuzzy and the techie. Um, and interestingly, you know, as a time capsule that's now six years old, it's surprisingly, uh, it's weathering the storm fairly well, I'd say. Um, the interesting thing about the book too is it's it, it highlights a number of companies that mostly I mostly I say it's my anti-portfolio like Bessemer has their <laughs> own anti-portfolio because it's all the companies that I loved but for some reason um, my venture firm at the time or myself personally I uh, didn't have the liquidity I couldn't invest in these companies or I couldn't get my firm to invest in these companies and so they're all the ones that got away and um, hold, you know hopefully they they still stand the test of time you know when you read the book about Stitch Fix and about, you know, Keep Trucking and about a number of companies that are actually now doing quite well and sort of unicorns or public companies. Um, you know, back in 2017, 2016, they, they weren't yet uh, to that level. So um, it's kind of, a, kind of a fun exercise to say, what would you put into a time capsule if you could never change it, Barack? You know, <laughs> what would you say? They're completely understandable. And how do you see the roles of technology and human skills evolving together in the future. What types of jobs or skills do you think that will thrive and in upcoming decades? You know, so I think there's so many, there's so many amazing examples in the book. Um, one that I talk about frequently is uh, self-driving cars. You know, we think about um, autonomous vehicles as a purely technical challenge, but when you actually go to Waymo, you go to, you go to you know, Tesla, you go to Cruise, you go to even Nissan, the, the person who runs the self-driving car division at Nissan for a long time was an anthropologist with a PhD. And you might say, well, why is an anthropologist running the autonomous, autonomous vehicles division at Nissan? And the real reason was because, um, you know, coding uh, or hard coding uh, human skills, human behaviors into a car is very difficult. And it requires sort of understanding of tacit communication techniques, anthropology across cultures. And so interestingly, for uh, an example like autonomous vehicles, the commodity is the code. The thing that's really difficult is figuring out what people are doing, why they're doing it, how they're doing it, and how do you interpret human behavior into how a car operates on the road, right? And so it's a good example of why anthropology and coding 
in the form of autonomous vehicles, th those things go hand in glove and they have to go together, right? And so that's one example. But I think what's what's really fun about the future to me is that if you have a set of multiple skills that you know are contrarian and people don't think go together, a really good example of this is ballet and robotics. Um, a good friend of mine, her name is Katie Kwan. Katie started something, which is a whole movement called Choreo Robotics. And it was a movement because she was a ballerina. She studied mechanical engineering after being a ballerina professionally. People thought it was crazy that she was trying to put ballet and robotics together. And she created this whole field called Choreo Robotics, which she did her PhD thesis on, which is about um, creating more graceful movements in robots through choreography and through ballet and through dance that makes robots a little bit more humanoid and gives people more trust with those robots. So for example, in a hospital system, if you wanted to have a robot helping somebody sit up in bed or eat, eat their meal, if that robot looks like a machine, nobody trusts it, nobody likes it. Through Choreo Robotics, she was able to work with robotics companies to make the movements a little bit more graceful, work with engineers to, to incorporate movements of ballet which in turn makes those robots feel a little bit more human and people trust the robots and they use them more. And so it's a really cool example of how the humanities and tech really go together. And I mean, there's, there's a million more in the book, but um, I think that's how the symbiosis of those two things, you know, as you look at big data, for example, as you look at machine learning or AI, um, really it's, it hinges not just on collecting as much data as possible, but what happens is as we collect more and more data, we really have to make decisions about which data to pay attention to and which to leave out. And those decisions about what to pay attention to are these fundamentally kind of moral and questions around bias, questions around where the data was, was collected, how it was collected. So there's a lot of things there that aren't just machine learning. They're not just AI. They're not just technology. They really get down to sociology, criminology, um, you know, different, different elements of societal um, observation that really are rooted in social sciences and the humanities, right? And so I think um, it's really, uh, it's a debate that's been going for a long time. And the book, you know, really sort of builds upon a debate that was happening at Cambridge in the late 1950s. Um, in 1950s, this debate of a, a, basically a philosopher and a novelist named C.P. Snow it was called the Two Cultures Lecture. And he was lamenting this divide on campus between sciences and humanities. And today we just have a different divide, which is between STEM and liberal arts, STEM and humanities, um, AI and, um, and, you know, and, and, and human skills or human and machine, right? And so we have this sort of, again, polar, polarized conversation when it's always been about both and it will always be about both, right? So how, we, how do we put these two things together? Many debates, I mean, whether AI will also eliminate more jobs than it creates. Uh, what is your view on this? I mean, do you believe there will be enough new types of works to off offset this disruption? Yeah, you know, it's it's hard to opine on the future of, of the future of work and the future of everything. I think that you know the the adage is true that we really overestimate the future in the short run and we underestimate it in the long run. So you know where the world will go in fifty or hundred years, I don't know. I think where the world will go in five or ten years is much more around intelligence amplification or IA than it is around pure AI. So I actually am a bit of a naysayer. Um, you know, I think that we'll see AI will have its heyday. The, the hype cycle will go up and it will drop off a cliff. You know, in a year or two, when people realize that these things can solve certain isolated challenges. 
but they're not holistically going to uh, rapidly change our society as much as I think people expect in the, in the near term. In the long term, I do believe that they will. But I think the way that we invest in AI and we invest in future of work is looking at specific workflows and where there are rote and routine tasks within those workflows and where those workflows can be can be automated and 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 optimized right and so i wrote a piece a, a few months ago that is called um you know the ai the ai question is about strong versus skinny and really what i mean by that is if you have certain inputs um with your team and you can supplement them with ai you can 10x the output so that's choosing the path of strong you can also cut your inputs. You could say, well, I'm able to generate this output with only one person instead of 10 people because I have AI that's able to 10X that person's output. That's the skinny uh, conversation, right? So you're able to choose as a company, do you go strong or do you go skinny? I think more companies will choose strong. I think more companies will actually say, hey, rather than cut my, all my costs and generate the same output and be less competitive in this relative environment where everyone else got better and we're just producing the same output, that's not going to be a choice unless you have to cut costs to save your business. So I really think what we're going to see is um, a massive increase in output, which should hopefully mean you know higher higher uh, output in goods for for people. Maybe maybe a mitigation of, uh, of 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 poverty to some degree to that to the extent that some of that output is spread you know more uh, more around the world. I, I don't have my uh, optimistic glasses on about that. I think it could also rise. Uh, rise inequalities and and really create isolated um, places of of extreme haves and have-nots. Um, so I think that there's a lot of societal questions around that. But really, you know, when we think about AI, we think about it as supplementing humans, more about intelligence amplification within specific work streams. And so when we invest, we're not looking at LLMs or large language models that aim to do everything, you know, at, at, at one meter deep, what we're really looking for is maybe uh, some public data that's scraped, some private data that's collected, and then an LLM that's highly verticalized to a very specific problem. So it could be an LLM that does AI related to, you know, medical billing optimization for healthcare professionals in a certain type of doctor, right? Mm -hmm. That's that's the type of company that we're really looking at. And that's where I think those AIs can go very deep and they can take a doctor and they can make them 10 times more efficient. That's, that's again, the strong answer, not the skinny answer. It's not that we're eliminating all the doctors and there's only going to be one instead of 10. I think it means that the 10 doctors we have are suddenly going to be able to do way more things with their patients. They're going to have, you know, the ability to sort of spend more of their time on the corner cases. So for example, radiology, people often say, well, radiologists, that they're just looking at an image certainly that can be done with machine learning and all the radiologists are gonna go away. I think when you actually go and interview radiologists, they say, look, I have no time to speak with my patients. I spend most of my time looking at very basic, you know, broken bone or whatever it is. Um, if I could spend none of my time looking at all the, the clear, clear cut answers and spend all my time on the corner case, crazy situations that really require human and machine, machine learning helping me, but me sort of with 20 years of experience being able to like find the nuances, you know, imagine a doctor spending all of their time with patients or working on those extreme corner case situations when all the baseline stuff is able to be handed off a little bit more to machines. That's a better situation, you know? So again, this is a very optimistic view, but I don't see, you know, all the jobs going away. I think what I see is what McKinsey said about five years ago when they did a big study 
where they said, if you look at jobs, every job is made up of tasks. So if a job is not one thing, a job is a hundred things, right? If you have a job that's doing whatever it is, there are actually a hundred tasks. Some of those tasks are manual tasks where you have to walk down the hallway, pick up something. Those are manual tasks. And some of them are cognitive tasks where you're putting in you know, data into an Excel spreadsheet. And so there will be certain things within the set of tasks that are repeatable and you do them hundreds and hundreds of times. And at some point of repeatability, there's going to be a cost calculus of do we substitute technology for labor around this particular work stream around manual labor or cognitive labor, right? And so what it's going to mean is that some of the tasks go away, but not the jobs, right? So the jobs will still be there, but maybe 20% of the tasks inside that job will be going to machine learning or they'll be going to AI. Um, so again, this is a very optimistic view, but you know, having spoken with a number of these people through the process of writing the book, and then obviously through investing you know, for the last 12 years, I think that we're going to overestimate what it's going to do in the short run. And then obviously in 50 or 100 years, you know, who knows? I understand. I mean, uh, there will be efficient and effective uh, ta tasks under the jobs. So the, for example, designers still use mid-journey and also stable fusion or other kinds of tools. So they will be more efficient and product uh, productive. Yeah, exactly. I think, you know, the way I use AI today um, is, is I don't use it as probably as much as I should, uh, to be honest, but the way I use it is to kind of generate frameworks or to think of more examples. So I have a direction that I'm going in. And to me, it, I think it requires um, almost being like a lawyer or a Socrates to yourself, right? Imagine you're in the courtroom and you have to follow a line of inquiry and you have to ask you know, somebody's on the stand and you have to ask them not one question, but 20 questions. And as they answer, you have to keep asking them more questions and more questions until you get to the thing that you want them to say, hmm. right? And I think AI is a little bit like that, or it's about it like, a, like a dumb Socrates where you, you ask it a question and it responds and you ask another question, it responds. And so the way I use AI personally is if I'm going to write a piece and, I'm, and I can think of two examples, I might ask ChatGPT, hey, I'm writing about this thing here are two examples. What are eight more examples? I want to have 10 examples and it will generate eight more examples. And usually three of them are things that I'd say, oh yeah, I remember that. I should have said that. I should have thought that, but five of them might be unique and they might actually be accretive and give me a different idea. And I'm like, oh, so it's a creativity mechanism for me. It's like a ping pong ball that I'm able to bounce back with a creative sparring partner. Right. And so the irony people think that AI is not creative it's maybe itself not creative, but I think as a ping pong ball to my mind and my ability to sort of think, okay, I want to write about this. I have three examples. I want more examples. When it gives me back that feedback, it's jogging my brain to be more creative and it's giving me more examples. And so therefore, you know, I think as a, as a Socrates or as a ping pong ball, it's, it can be this really interesting tool to generate more creativity within, you know, within the human mind. That's, that's how I, I use it personally. I mean, you mentioned about the VC uh, uh, that uh, the investments that you have done and passed, you have invested over, I think, 300 companies uh, across five continents, maybe more, right? Uh, probably yeah. uh, uh, growing. But the, funny thing, the, the funny thing, Barack, is, is that that number is always out of date because we've probably done, you know, one deal in the last week. Uh, <laughs> As, as we always exchange, you know, exchange WhatsApps. So I think the number is probably around there. Yeah, that's true. 
what are the some most important lessons you have learned about identifying these international opportunities over the past decade of global investing? How do you uh, spot them? Yeah, you know it's it's hard because at the very it's it's a snowball that keeps that keeps growing, right? And so it's very difficult to say what we do today um, and and what we did what I did twelve years ago. You know, it was very very different. So I think over the course of you know one of the most profound things that one of my friends told me a long time ago, we were in Boston and we were standing in front of a map on the wall, and the map had all these pins in it, places that he had traveled to. And I was standing there at like midnight looking at this map and he just came up to me and he said, hey, life is long. We're going to get to all those places. And it was one of those things that was a very, we were kids, you know, we were like in college and it was just a very profound thing that was this deeply optimistic message of life is long. We're going to get to all those places. And I think that it's true, you know, in the sense that, um, you know, Brock, we met probably 12 years ago, right? And so people uh, in your life, they keep coming back around, they keep doing interesting things and you're building relationships for the duration of your life, right? Not for one year, five years, but for 30, 40, 50 years, right? And so I think what's been really interesting over the last decade is building a truly global network just through trying to be a genuine person, right? And so you kind of talked about some of my background from working in tech to working in government, White House, to writing a book, to doing venture capital. And all these were just authentic explorations of myself and things I wanted to do at the time. But they give you this uh, vocabulary to be able to empathize or relate to lots of different types of people. And that in turn leads to a network that um, gives back, you know, as you kind of stoke the, the conversations with people that think you're authentic and trust you and, and want to work with you that leads to, you know, that's, that's our job is kind of finding deals uh, that come, come from nowhere before Delaware finds out about them and before TechCrunch writes about them. Right. And so, you know, our, our method of investing really comes from our LP base. And so for us, we have 500 founders uh, who are LPs in our funds and those founders, they might've originally sat in New York. You know, we started the firm in New York um, but New York is a very global city, just like Istanbul. There are people from all over the world that are that are there. And so especially during COVID, when people started to leave New York, they started to go back to these different places. We we really felt this pull of our, our LP base and our deal flow was starting to go back to Sydney, back to Jakarta, back to Lagos, back to Berlin, back to Istanbul. And so we started to see, you know, deals coming from these uh, other sides of the, of the world. And so for us, you know, we, we used to be called The Fund, and we actually changed the name about a year ago to Everywhere Ventures, not because uh, of any reason, except for that we were already investing everywhere. And we had to answer this question so many times of, hey, I have this great founder who's sitting in Cape Town. Would you guys like to meet them? And we would always say, yes, you know, if they're great, like we'd, like, we'd love to meet them. We invest everywhere. And we had said this a hundred times. And so that was the, that was the story behind, you know, why we, why we changed the name. You invest very quickly. I mean, uh, your process is very lean and simple. What is your process of investing? H how long does it take to decide, finalize your decision of investment? Yeah. You know, I think one thing I've learned over the last you know 12 years is um, when I first started in venture capital, I could sort of tell 50-50 if something was interesting or not interesting to me, right? And that didn't have any validation, validating on the merit of the company, the merit of the founder, the merit of the idea. The idea could be an amazing company, amazing founder, but it just wasn't interesting for me, right? And so 
for me, I was able to kind of say 50, 50, this stuff looks interesting. This stuff I'm not so sure about. I think as I've gotten potentially, hopefully better as an investor over the last years, um, that threshold gets much higher. And so now I'd say it's, you know, 80%, 90%, not that this isn't a good company, but I know this isn't interesting for me. I know this isn't exactly what I understand, where I believe the world's going, what I want to spend my time on, or that I think could be, you know, a unicorn idea, right? So there's there's the gating factor. Number one is just, is it interesting to me as a person? Do I think that this could make money for our LPs? And do I want to spend my time working on this? So I'd say that already gets the filter to 90, 90, 10, right? And then I really try to spend my time on those last 10 and really get to know the founders, really sort of evaluate. I, I think of venture capital at the pre-seed and seed is much less finance and it's much more psychology, right? We're not we're not evaluating spreadsheets and looking at PL and looking at gross margins. I mean, there's there's certain elements of traction that we will dig into. We really like to look at, you know, over time, can this person find sustainable you know, customer acquisition cost? Is the LTV potential, the lifetime value potential far in excess of what their CAC will be? You know, it does the business make sense? So we certainly look at all those things, but really what we're evaluating are qualities of the person and thinking about that in terms of grit and perseverance and um, desire to be building this company for a very long time, right? And so as we've now been investing out of Everywhere Ventures for five or six years, you know, we've seen sort of the years of, of that data and which personality types, which uh, which which elements of, of character lead somebody to quit, lead somebody to uh, persevere, to pivot five times and keep going, to let go of their, their whole team and fire their co-founder and still keep going, or, you know, or have a million dollars in the bank and decide the market's not there and they don't want to do the business anymore, right? And there's there's all sides of that. And so really, we're having heart-to-heart -heart conversations with founders to try to understand their motivations and try to understand if we think that, you know, this is a really big opportunity and this is the right person at the right time to be able to stick with this for the next five years. And I'd say those are the elements that we really, really dig in, dig in on. And sometimes those are things that you can get to quite quickly. You might have two conversations with somebody and say, well, this, this really feels like the type of personality, the type of um, grit, perseverance, energy that is moving um, in a direction that I know even if this business doesn't work perfectly, I can see the fire in their eyes that they want to make this happen. And it might be the second or the third or the fourth idea, but they're going to keep doing it. Right. And I think that that's the big thing that Jenny, my co-founder and I really, really look for. And then the other piece of it is we don't make decisions by consensus. So the two of us don't have to agree on a given deal. If one of us really says, Hey, this isn't, this isn't for us. Why are we doing this? We, we won't do it. So there is a ability to kind of veto or block a deal, but generally what we want to be is conviction led, not consensus led, where one of us says, I know this is a little crazy, but I still want to do this deal. And the other person says, really, if you believe that, let's do it. And so there's a, there's a real, there's a heavy trust around conviction, um, but with not sort of to the lukewarm consensus where we're both like, Hey, do you want to do it? Do you want to do it? I don't know. Do you want to do it? Then we just say no. Right. So that's, that's kind of how we, um, have a process at the early stage, but, you know, it really leans on a lot of our network. If it's a domain that we don't have sort of uh, a plus expertise in, we're very quickly talking to five founders in that sector, most of whom are our LPs or our portfolio companies already. So, you know, again, at this point, sort of many years in with this, 
global network, we really are able to very quickly triangulate around geographies, business models, sectors, founders, um, to say, hey, there's this guy, Barack, he's in Turkey. What do you think about him? And you know, we'll ask 10 people that. And so we'll very quickly triangulate around a business um, through our LP network mostly. So you you speak, I think, probably have uh, meetings, thousands of uh, calls in a year time. What are some red flags that may, that might turn you off, especially in a couple of meetings or calls? Yeah, it's a great question. Um, I do have thousands of calls, as you would imagine. I'm, I'm sure you do too. Um, number one, I think it's... Uh, so we have a lot of, I mean, one, one, one is just spending your time with somebody, right? And so I think authenticity, um, charisma, all these things go a long way, right? And so being, being somebody that is a joy to spend 30 minutes with where you get off the call or, you know, you even cancel your next call because you say, hey, I'm really enjoying this. I want to dig in deeper. I'm going to spend a whole hour on this, on this concept. Those are great signs. Um, I think, so to me, somebody that doesn't feel authentic is a red flag. Uh, somebody that's just doing something to, to kind of tick a box or because um, because everyone else is being an entrepreneur, this is sort of, you know. so I, I really look at some of the the businesses and I say, is this person, do they have, are they an empath founder? Did they really experience a problem intimately directly themselves? And are they digging into this problem themselves because this is an area of passion? I find that that's probably not going to go away anytime soon. And that's a gritty founder that might stick with it for longer. Um but you know those are those are sort of the things that, that that we look for just how do we want to be spending our time who do we want to be spending our time with and we we really try to have a you know a policy of of backing world positive companies and so there's plenty of good businesses out there that probably will make lots of money um you know we really we're not an impact fund but we do think that uh, businesses and startups can have amazingly positive impact and so we try to invest in companies that we define as as world positive um, they could be in a, an emerging market um, where they're providing jobs, you know, and that has a world positive element to it. Um, but if it's building a product that we see as kind of detrimental to some of those things, then we won't we won't make the investment. And uh, what do you uh, think uh, when a, a startup is rejected from a VC? What kinds of advices, for example, you can give uh, the, the ones that you have uh, passed, for example, uh, probably... Yeah. Most of the uh, founders take it personally. Absolutely, you know, and 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 I think one thing to take to heart is that most venture capitalists, um, myself at least, but most most are, you know, they're raising third party capital themselves, right? So venture capitalists are not investing their own money. Angel investors typically are, but VCs that run institutional funds are in the exact same boat as founders in many ways, in the sense that we have to go fundraise. And as we raised our $25 million third fund, you know, we had around 300, 350 conversations with potential LPs, so potential investors. We had probably 90 of those uh, convert into making investments. But if you think about that, with multiple meetings on 350 uh, conversations, you're talking about 700 plus calls to convert maybe 90 investors to raise $20 million. If you think, you think about a founder, many times you get one lead investor that does 15 million, and then you have you know a few other people come in and you only have 10 or 15 investors in the round. And so one of my friends who's really fundraised three times as a founder and then multiple times as a VC, he actually said to me, 
hey, actually VC uh, fundraising is almost a little harder than 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 startup fundraising, which I know is not the not the answer people people might like hearing, but it's uh, I guess it's not easy on either side of the table. And so we both have empathy for each other. Um, and so what I would say is the same way that when I experience rejection from an LP saying, I don't think your model works. I don't think that your style of investing is the right style of investing. I only want a very specific person that only does fintech and only does it in Germany and only does this. And you guys are way too broad. You know, we hear all sorts of rejections, right? And I try to, of course, sometimes I get mad. Sometimes I go for a run. Sometimes I, I go to the gym. And I think you got to figure out your way of kind of letting the air out, you know, and uh, and so letting the steam off. And of course, you know, it's it's a personal thing. It's an, it's an affront to how you feel you're running your business. Um, but I'd say like, try to not take it personally, try to find those escape valves of sports and, and other ways that you can feel good again. Um, and then um, really, it's about finding one investor that loves you, not a bunch of investors that kind of like you, right? And so take your time and have a bunch of those conversations because you're really looking for kind of a life partner. You're looking for somebody that's going to stick with you for the life of your company. And um, so those are those are some bits of advice. You know, I think that the, the the number of conversations it typically takes to fundraise is quite a lot. Um, so, you know, you, you want to sequence those conversations where if you have your dream investor, you probably don't want to pitch them very first. You probably want to warm up with some people, get to know your story, listen to the feedback. And I think one thing that's quite challenging, you know, as you pitch and as we pitch our, our firm is you want to have conviction around your vision. You don't want to sort of be a kite in the wind moving with every bit of feedback, right? You don't want to change your story every other pitch because the last person said, don't do this, do that. So you need to have your own backbone. You need to have your own conviction and you need to have your own direction. But you also need to repeatedly, if the repeated feedback is coming in and coming in and coming in saying what a certain thing, you also have to have the humility to then strong pivot your business, right? And so I think what you don't want to do is be the kite in the wind that sort of moves uh, willy-nilly wherever the wind blows. But if the wind is consistently blowing a certain direction, you might need to say, okay, I have conviction about this, but I need to strong pivot the business 45 degrees this other way because everyone is telling me the same thing. And so it's a very, it's a very delicate line of having conviction and also having humility, right? And you have conviction, you have conviction until it doesn't make sense. And then you have to have the humility to pivot, right? And so I think that's, as you navigate these conversations with investors, that's exactly the dance that you're having, right? You want to listen, you want to be strong-willed and have a backbone, but you want to listen. And then if you're consistently hearing the same thing, maybe, you know, may, maybe not one person is right, but 20 people might be right. And so if you're hearing that over and over again, you know, about the market or the certain direction of the business model, um, those are things that could maybe improve the pitch, you know, and so try to be open to that as well. Great feedback insights, by the way. It's morning over there. What does a typical day look like? I mean, uh, juggling, uh, investing, speaking, writing, and family life. How is your uh, daily life uh, look like? Yeah, it's, you know, it's, it's interesting. So I spent 10 years in New York City, and I recently moved back to California, which is where I'm from, where I grew up. And um, the interesting thing about California is you're on the West Coast of the States. And so you often interact, I often interact with the East Coast, New York, you know, Europe, um, you're in Istanbul, a lot of my, you know, business colleagues and friends are in London or other places. Um, so basically, you know, my day starts quite early. 
Um, not crazy early because I'm probably not a morning person by default. Um, even though I'd like to try to become one, I'd say I, I use Calendly. I use a lot of uh, tools to sort of compartmentalize my day. And so, for example, I only let people schedule meetings within certain hours of my day. And typically those are the first five hours of my morning. Um, so, you know, I might have five to 10 calls in that five hour block. If they're 30 minute calls, I literally might have 10 of them. I sometimes try to carve out, you know, 30 minutes in the middle there. So my dog doesn't, you know, uh, attack my leg and I can let her go outside for, for 30 minutes and, and run around the backyard. Um, but otherwise I'd say my, my day is, uh, pretty reactive in the morning. So it's, 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 it's outbound, it's, uh, responding to calls. It's talking to portfolio companies, talking to new entrepreneurs, doing some internal meetings with, with our team, our head of marketing, our head of community about events we might be running upcoming, um, with my co-founder, Jenny Fielding. So those are, those are things that we might be doing in the mornings. And then what I really try to do is leave my afternoons free uh, to one, deal with emergency situations that might need to have, uh, you know, an hour call for some other reason that's a company that's fundraising or going through something that's struggling. Um, maybe we're closing a deal and there's something that we really have to write the memo or we have to get something done, or it's just kind of long form content that I want to be writing and thinking. And so for me, really my mornings until about one o'clock, two o'clock in the afternoon are just calls and reactive and then, you know, lunch and, and then a lot more like thinking space in the afternoon where I try to, you know, and I think thinking space can be lots of things. So it might be going, going on a hike, going on a long walk, listening to a podcast, but it's, it's getting your mind in more of a long form mode rather than like a short form reactive mode. So that's kind of how I divide my day up. What I didn't like when I lived in New York was that short form reactive mode was my whole day. Right. And so it was just calls, you know, interspersed at 8 a.m. and at 6 p.m. and all throughout the day. And as a person that needs to sort of sit back and reflect and write and digest information, I found it very difficult to sort of carve out the space. You had to, I had to carve it out artificially by going to a cafe and hiding, you know, and not taking my phone with me, not taking my laptop with me, only bringing a notepad. That was the only way for me to hide in an urban environment to carve out, you know, two hours of space where nobody would bother me, right? So, so I think we all have our own hacks of how we navigate, uh, you know, life and and family and and obligations, and um, you know, I think as you build a venture fund as well, people think, hey, all you do is talk to founders. Actually, we probably talk to founders twenty five or thirty percent of the time. We talk to portfolio companies probably thirty percent of the time. We talk to LPs, you know. 15% of the time, and then 15% of the time, we're sort of fighting fires or dealing with internal things uh, that, 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 that come up. And so, you know, you're really running a business, a holistic business that has a lot of stakeholders. And so it's very similar. It's probably more similar to founder life than, um, than a lot of startup founders realize. Uh, by the way, I mean, several last questions. So which kinds of podcasts are you listening or what are one or two books that you could recommend? to founders or investors that you have lately read? It's a great question. Um, you know, as far as podcasts, um, I listen to, I listen to specific podcasts, I'd say around conversations or, um, or insights that I don't think I can find many other places. I, I think podcasts are really, I listened last night to a, a large LP talking on uh, Harry Stubbings, uh, 20 Minute VC. And it was just a very interesting conversation that unless I was in the room at a conference or having a one-on-one -on -one meeting with 
that particular LP, I would never be able to get those insights. And I don't think those insights are covered deeply enough in an article that I might read on the internet, right? So I think for me, um, podcasts really go deep. And if you want to listen to somebody's methodology or how they think or have access to great thinkers, I really think that podcasts in 40 minutes of listening to somebody talk are an incredible way to kind of see how they how they view the world, you know? And honestly, if somebody listens to this podcast, they'll get a pretty good sense of me, pretty good sense of you, a pretty good sense of how I think, how Everywhere Ventures functions, and, you know, much more so than reading one blog post, right? So I think, I think podcasts um, in general, like going down to the specific topic that you want to learn about or the specific person that you want to listen to and hear from. Um, so it's less to me about hosts and less about um, which podcast. It's more about who the guest is. I'd say that's, that's like, that's what I'd say. Um, and as far as books, um, you know, I think the, the startup books that have resonated most with me, um, you know, the, the classics kind of hard thing about hard things, um, zero to one, uh, lean startup. Um, but I think on the personal side, um, sometimes I, I like reading fiction that just pulls me completely out of out of out of my world um and so for me um yeah books that sort of take me to a different time and place um so so one i read a few years ago um that i really love and really stuck with me was one called the north water and it just took me uh to a shipping vessel that was going across the the north sea uh you know two three hundred years ago and it was very visceral and it was very uh dark and and moving in a lot of ways but, you know, I think things like fiction to really detach yourself from your world. And I think a lot of us that that build companies, build startups and work in venture, we tend to sort of live in nonfiction land and we read every blog and we listen to every podcast and we read every startup tech book. And I think um, zoom out, you know, go back and read Anna Karenina, go back and read Russian literature or something that just takes you to a completely different mind space and gives you a whole different sense of time and impact and, and and I think to me that's you know the backdrop of my book as well and why you know the why the humanities why philosophy why all these things are are useful is they they teach you how to think in a different way than just sort of drinking from the fire hose and <laughs> digesting the latest uh you know 20 minute news cycle that we uh, that we all see in front of us Scott last question if you could have a dinner with three people dead or alive who would you choose and why Gosh, um, this is a good question. I think, um, so my my dad uh, worked in the space program and always had a passion for space. Um, and my sister's actually named after an astronaut that he worked with when he was younger. Um, so I think Neil Armstrong would be one of them um, to get his perspective of what it was like to be on the moon. Uh, I think that's that's pretty neat. I was going to say Elon Musk, but I was like, no, actually, I'd rather Elon Musk has not been he's not been out of, out of the out of out of out of the Earth's atmosphere. I don't think yet. I mean, maybe he will be somebody that goes to Mars eventually, but I think Neil Armstrong would be, would be one. Um, I think Thomas Jefferson, in the sense of somebody who was really ahead of his time in a lot of ways. I mean, certainly there are controversial things about his his history as well, but uh, somebody who was truly a Renaissance person that was able to do. 20 things uh, to an incredible degree, um, from being a horseman to a statesman to a lawyer to a philosopher to an author to you know politician, um, and I think Steve Jobs. So Steve Jobs, Jefferson, and Neil Armstrong. 
And Jobs, I think, just because he was kind of a childhood hero, uh, he was somebody actually that was in Palo Alto when I was a kid. I used to park my car sometimes to do math homework at my friend's house, and I would park it purposefully in front of Steve Jobs' house because I would see him inside and he would be doing his dishes. Believe it or not, Steve Jobs actually did his own dishes. And I would tell my friends this when I lived in India, and they said, why, why would he not have a staff of people that would help him uh, wash his dishes? And I said, you know, you just lived in a pretty nice, pretty normal house. You know, he had a couple fancy Mercedes cars and he did his own dishes. And that was, that's kind of how he lived. And uh, so I think, you know, having seen him around as a, as a kid, uh, always having an Apple product, always, you know, loving um, what they were doing, um, he would definitely also be a hero of mine. Well, this has been a fascinating conversation. Thank you again, Scott, for your insights and into the world of venture capital and your writing and much, much more. I mean, it was amazing to having you on our podcast. And um, thank you again, Scott. It was great to having you on, on the podcast. My pleasure. Thanks for having me, Brock.